parked you. A good-looking African-American man is getting ready to come out and preach, and I didn't want you to be confused. So it's me. Hi. Uh, I'm in Kansas City at a national missionary convention or having barbecue. I'm not sure exactly at this moment what I'm doing, but I'm speaking this weekend at a national missionary convention to thousands of missionaries from across the globe. I've invited Derek Puckett to come. Derek, you met last week if you were here. He and his wife Kaylee are planting a church for us on the west side of Chicago, a multiracial church, disciple-making church that we're very excited about. We're a very major partner in this. We're working with another church in Indianapolis and some other churches from around the globe, including Southeast Christian Church as well. And we're all working together to plant this thing because we really want to make a difference in Chicagoland. Derek and his wife Kaylee um, found Derek found his wife through Kaylee. He's going to tell you that story along the way. But he grew up in Gary, grew up in a in, in a tough situation without a dad around, and um, he's going to talk about hopelessness is nothing today. I, I wanted you to hear from him, and then next week I'm going to come back and hit poverty is nothing. We're going to talk about some ways that we're conquering things here. We're going to have some good stories coming along in the next three weeks. And, and so today you get to start with Derek. I'm very excited about having him here. Would you welcome my friend Derek Puckett? Thank you. Thank you. Well, hello Parkview and hello to our Lockport campus and everybody that's joining us on the internet my name is Derek Puckett, as Tim just said, and I'm sad that I can't say the same thing about him. I know he called me a good-looking black man. And, I mean, he's a, I can't call him a good-looking white man. It's just, it's just not in me to do that. But uh, it, It's good to be with you all this morning. And, and all jokes aside, I'm just so thankful and encouraged for you all as a church. Pastor Tim and all the pastors here on staff have been a, a great support and an encouragement to us as we have just moved here to the city to see God do a work in the city. My wife is here with me. Um, she's sitting down in the front row. She is beautiful, guys. Uh, and I'm thankful that she's here with me. Guys, we want to see Jesus do a work in this city. And like he said, we want to see something different. So not just a new church, but a different type of church where ethnicities come together from all different types of backgrounds. And, and the racial divide is no more. We want to see socioeconomics divide just just dismantle. We want to see people from different cultures and different backgrounds come together in this city. And I always like to use the United Center as, as imagery, because if you think about the United Center, or even Soldiers Field for that, all of these games that we have, and, and people come together from the, to these games, they come from different parts of the city. They come from different backgrounds. They come from different cultural backgrounds. But if you think about it, people are coming together week in and week out, and today we have a game also, but people are coming from all over the place, and they come together for a game. Why can't the church do that? Amen? So, so we're looking right... Yeah, amen. So we're looking around the United Center, and we, we love that area because if you go in any cardinal direction, northwest, south, or east, you're going to run into a different demographic. You're going to run into a different type of people, different culture. All of that is right there around the United Center, and we love that area because we, could, we, we just dream of seeing Jesus do a work where followers of Jesus come together, and they reproduce, and we start a movement in the city of Chicago, something that's not done, and, and seeing these cultures come together around the cross of Jesus Christ. We believe that vertically, if you look at the cross, there's two beams. Vertically, we're reconciled to Jesus, but also we're reconciled to one another. That's the gospel, and that's what we dream of seeing here in the city of Chicago. 
Well, guys, today we're starting a new series called Impossible is Nothing, and I have the privilege of today talking about hopelessness being nothing. Pastor Tim last week gave us a great segue into what we'll be talking about today when he talked about suffering, and he he asked the questions of of, of why do we suffer, and and we asked those questions so many times, and today we're going to talk about Something along the same lines, but we're going to talk about how do we act in the midst of suffering and in the midst of, in the midst of hopelessness, which we all go through. What do we do when we're in those times of life? So if you have your Bibles or if you have your smartphones, why don't you open with me? We're going to read in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And I'm going to ask you guys to stand up if you don't mind this morning with me, if you're able. We're going to read the word together and... Guys, I know he, he said I was an African-American man, so that means that when I preach, if you hear something you like, say amen. Go ahead. <laughs> Hallelujah. Do something. It's okay. It won't hurt me, I promise. Amen. Yeah. Chapter 19 of 1 Kings reads, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he, and he looked, and behold, there was a, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Very words of God, amen. You can be seated. Well, it was in 1996 that the famous famous cyclist Lance Armstrong was diagnosed with testicular cancer. This cancer would travel from below all the way up into his lungs and into his brain. He would have extensive treatments of chemotherapy that would leave him on bed rest and, and would leave him sick where he couldn't even get out the house. But miraculously, we would see him overcome this disease within a year where he would be declared cancer free. Lance Armstrong, because of this trial in his life, he would start the Lance Armstrong Foundation, which most of us today know of it as the Live Strong Foundation. If you were like me, you probably wore one of those yellow rubber bands around your wrist, simply signifying the fact that we just want cancer patients to live strong. We want them to have hope for their lives. Lance Armstrong would go on to sign a new contract, and he would win seven Tour de France's. Nobody had ever done that. Lance Armstrong was at the top of the racing world. He even had shoes named after him. What type of cyclist has shoes named after him? But he did. Lance Armstrong was the person that everyone looked up to. But sadly, as we know it, in 2012, he would be found taking performance-enhancing drugs. This would cause him to be stripped of all of his medals, all of his honor. Everything would be taken away from him. And now he would be left in this pit of hopelessness, this, this, pit, 
there was a valley for him where he came from the mountaintop where everybody's looking up to him and now he's looked at as mostly as a failure. See, Lance Armstrong can't even be affiliated with the sport anymore. He's been banned from the sport where you can find him now racing in free races where he once was the one signing autographs and now that's the only way he can stay in the game. He can't even be affiliated with his own charity. He owes over $135 million in lawsuits. This once cyclist who was at the top is now in the valley. So guys, what does this have to do with us today? We need not only to know how to live on these mountaintops with God, but we need to live, know how to live in these valleys with God also. It's not always about up here, but it's down here with God. You see, that's what we're going to see today when we look at Elijah. We look at Elijah as this, this prophet most of the time, as he was the one that was looked up to by many. And we always talk about him being the great prophet that he was. But here in this text, we're going to see Elijah in a little different scenario where he comes encounter with one of our biggest enemies. And I would say that was our flesh. You see, he goes from these mountaintops with God. Now that he's in this valley. But the thing about these valleys, it, usually it does come right after these mountaintops because this is when we are, are working our hardest. This is the time where we're exerting our energy. This is where God uses us. And, and sometimes when we drop off of that, it's a big fall. And we're sitting in that valley and, and we're like, what is going on, God? But we're coming in contact with our flesh. Sometimes we're arrogant there or, or like nobody can touch us. Or we're just simply tired and done. Today we're going to look at Elijah in that scenario. See, guys, it's easy for us to trust God when we're up here with him. But can we trust him when we're down here? See, hopelessness is only nothing when we have Jesus. So today I want to give you two points. I want to simply talk about our fleshly reminder as number one. Number two, I want to talk about God caring for us despite our flesh. But before we go any further, would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this time this morning, God. I thank you for your people who are here and gathered to hear your word, God. I just pray simply right now that you would decrease me and that you would increase in this place, God. Fill my body and let your spirit go forth and let your word fall afresh on your people. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, guys, looking at our text right now, we, we can't just jump into it without knowing where Elijah comes from. 1 Kings 17, Elijah comes onto the scene and, and he, he confronts King Ahab. Now, King Ahab was the, one of the most reckless kings of all time here. He did more to provoke the Lord than anybody before his time. And here it is, Elijah comes on the scene and he confronts him saying that your God is not the true God. He tells him this because Baal was the God that Ahab served and it was supposed to be the God that was over the rain and the fertility of the land. And he comes and he says... Your God can't cause it to rain, and it won't rain on the land until my God says so. Elijah's pulled from the scene. God pulls him out, and he, he takes him to the brook Cherith. And, and there we see Elijah give us the ultimate example of what it means to trust God. He's sitting here at this brook, and he's being fed bread and meat by a raven. A raven is a dirty scavenger bird who only fends for himself. He eats so dead car carcasses. But here is Elijah being fed day and night by this raven, and he doesn't say a word. He just trusts God. He would then be moved from this brook when it dries up, and he goes to a widow's house, and the widow is on her last meal with her son, and, 
And, and Elijah says, trust God. And she goes, and, and now God has supplied and amplified everything they had, and now they can eat day in and day out. But sadly, while he's there, her son would die, and Elijah would trust God, knowing that he has the power over death and life, and he would bring her son back to life. Now, I love chapter 18. I love what happens in chapter 18 because Elijah comes before King Ahab again, and he confronts him. He confronts him again on his God, and, and he tells him that your God can't come down and con consume this offering right here. So Ahab gets the prophets together, and they're praying to Baal, and they're saying, God, please come down and consume this offering. They're praying day and night, but he never comes. All the while, Elijah is over here. He's preparing his altar very night, nice and neatly. He, he puts the altar together. He puts the offering on there. He puts the rocks. He puts the wood. And then he puts water around it. And I love what happens because he starts to pray, and God swoops down fire. He consumes the whole offering all the way down to the last drop of water. Now, guys, if we don't think we have a God that does not like idols in place of true worship of him, then we need to read this again because here he is. He doesn't spare anything. He takes the wood. He takes, the he takes it all the way down to the last drop of water. He doesn't leave anything. He goes to great lengths to show us that he is God. Isn't he good? God does this, and because of this, everybody that was there would, would bow their knee to him. And Elijah would go on to kill all the prophets of Baal. And I love what happens at the end of this because Elijah would go out to a mountain. He would pray to God, and, and God would hold on to his promise that he gave him in chapter 17 because he would bring rain. And this should cause us to be overjoyed because God holds on to his word. He holds on to his promise and doesn't take it back like some people we might know. We have a great God on our side, amen? So this brings us to verses 1 and 2 of our text today. And we see a king... King Ahab, now, now hear me when I say a king because he's the king. King Ahab is running to his wife, tattletelling on another man. He's a king. But he's tattletelling on another man like he's telling on his older sibling like he did something wrong. He's the most powerful person in the land, supposed to be making all the rules, the head of the household. You can go on down the line. But here he is running to his wife about another man doesn't make sense. But if you know Jezebel, Jezebel was this wicked, domineering woman. She was crazy. She was the one who really ruled this kingdom. You know, Ahab was just a messenger boy. He really didn't do anything. He just listened to his wife. Whatever she said was what went, was what went. She was the reason that Baal worship was in the land. She worshiped Baal, and now Ahab worships Baal, and now Israel's worshiping Baal. It's all because of Jezebel. So if you see the text, you get this picture of one man running to her, tattletelling, and then you see Elijah running away from her. Gosh, she was a wicked woman. <laughs> She's wicked. But there's a problem here with King Ahab. There is a problem with him, but there's a bigger problem with Elijah. Guys, we, we have just seen Elijah over the last three and a half years as we just went through the last chapters of his life, he's been on these mountaintops with God, and now he's running from a godless woman. Doesn't make sense. But I'd argue that this is where Elijah comes in contact with his flesh. 
which brings us to our first point, our fleshly reminder. This is our first point, our fleshly reminder. Have you ever been at that place before? I mean, where you've accomplished something or you've done something very well or, or God has used you in a, in a crazy way and then all of a sudden you just feel like you have no energy. You're just drained and, and everything's just taken out of you. Have you ever been at that point before? Here's Elijah coming in contact with his flesh. And like I said before, these are the times where right after these mountaintops that, that we feel like we're distant from God. Have you ever been there where he's just used you and now you just went back into something crazy again? Some people say it like this. You're either going into a storm, you're in the storm itself, or you're coming out of the storm. See, I love this analogy, but I also think that we focus too much on the storm itself and, and not the fact that God's in the storm with us. And the fact that the storm is just a place where God is molding and shaping us so that we will trust him beyond a doubt anyway. That's what that's for. It's like in Matthew 14. If you look at that with me, Matthew 14, you see Jesus walking on the water. And Peter jumps out the boat seeing Jesus, and he's walking straight towards Jesus. He sees him. And as long as he keeps his eyes focused on Jesus, he's okay. He's not sinking. He's not going into the water. But as soon as he starts looking around, seeing the wind and the waves and everything around him, he starts to sink. It wasn't until he lost sight of Jesus that he started to sink. That's where Elijah is right now. He's afraid. He's running. It's almost like he lost sight of God in his life, and he, he starts to waver in his faith, and he's running away from everything that he knows. Verse 3 tells us that Elijah wasn't just afraid, but he ran to Beersheba. Now, you have to understand a little bit about the geography. Beersheba was at the bottom of Judah. Now, Elijah's at the northern kingdom in Israel. And he runs to the southern kingdom, Judah, and then he runs to the most southern part of Judah, which is Beersheba. And then it says that he leaves his servant there, and he runs another day's journey into the wilderness. He was afraid, guys. He's running. He's running away from everything he knows. He can't even trust God. He feels like he's in this place where he's all by himself. And guys, this is where our biggest enemy comes in because this is where we start to fear. We start to doubt. We, we start to feel like God is distant. And this is where he's lost view of God. It doesn't take much for us to get there, does it? Sometimes it's, it's just a few negative words from somebody. Or it, it might be a pop-up on the computer screen. Or it could be a death in the family, something bigger. It doesn't take much for us to, to get our view off God. But all of these feelings, fear, doubt, all of that, it's not of God. But there's things that we can do to combat that. I, I love what the scriptures say. And, and for me, I love memorizing scripture in Romans 8. It would tell us that if you look at verse 31, he tells us that God is for us. Who can, if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 34, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or, or the sword? Verse 37 through 39, it says, No, in all things thee we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, we have to remember what God says about us and what is true about us. Parkview, we have to gird ourselves with these truths that God gives us to fight against feelings and to fight against our flesh and to fight against the enemy that comes against us on a daily basis. But the question becomes after that is, you know, what if I'm so downcast in my struggles and my trials that I don't have anything in me to, to pray? I don't have it in me to read the scriptures. What do I do then? Guys, this is when we have to know that God still cares about us despite how we feel or despite where we are in our flesh. He, he saved us by grace, and it's this grace that will keep us. Grace being this gift that we didn't deserve. We did deserve the wrath of God, but he gave us his grace, giving us salvation if we believe in him. So that's how we were saved, and that's what keeps us. It's not our works, and it's never been about our works. This brings us to our second point, that God cares about us despite our flesh. God cares about us despite our flesh. Looking at verse 4, you see Elijah losing hope, and he's wallowing in this woe is me type of attitude, saying, Lord, take me. I'm no better than my fathers. And I love how God reacts. This is the first time we see Elijah doubt and run, like we said before, but here he, he's in this place wallowing in this woe is me like he's all alone by himself. And, and God could have easily reprimanded him and said, give me my prophet title back. You're not worthy of it. But he doesn't do that. The text tells us that an angel comes alongside him and wakes him up gently and says, get up and eat and rest. See, God knew where Elijah had come from, what he had been through. And he knows that it's still a journey ahead of him. So he wakes him up gently and tells him to eat and rest. You see, sometimes this is totally contrary to what we think about God. See, sometimes we think about God as this, this person who is truly out to get us, this, this God who is out for revenge, and if we mess up, he's going to get us. You ever heard anybody say, you better follow all the commandments or God's going to get you? Or, or if you better watch what you say, he might strike you down. You ever heard that before? See, the thing about this is that as you look at our text, you see that this is not our loving father. Instead of God beating us down when we're already down and when we're doubting and we're falling, he knows that we're going to do that. What does he do instead? He comes alongside and he, he picks us up and he says, rest and eat. I'm here for you. God is right there with you. This is where Elijah is and God comes to him and picks him up. I love what Chris Tomlin says in his song, Indescribable. He says, you saw the depths of my heart and you loved me the same. See, this, this makes my heart leap inside my chest because we have a God who cares about us despite what we do, despite where we are in our flesh or, or how we feel. God cares about us. You see, Elijah in this text is sitting in this woe is me type of attitude and can't trust anyone, not even God, but God still comes alongside him and gives him grace, gives him something that he didn't deserve. He deserved probably to be beaten down a little bit. He is running from everything. He's doubting. He's not trusting. But instead, God gives him something he didn't deserve and, and loves on him in his time of need. Guys, have you ever been there before? I mean, have you been there where you are just, you're just done with life? I mean, it's been beating you down and you're at this point where you're just ready to throw in a towel and just quit. 
But then God stepped in. You ever had that before? I love what some people call it. They call it but God moments. But if God didn't step in, I, I probably would be dead. But if it wasn't for God, I'd be out here, I'd be hooked on drugs. But if it wasn't for God, I wouldn't be married. But if it wasn't for God, I simply wouldn't be sitting in this seat today. You ever had a but God moment? Pastor Tim asked me to share my testimony, and I look at my story as just a huge but God moment. See, I was born prematurely, and I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck to where I shouldn't even be born. It was a miracle that I was born. And I thank God for that, but then I would be raised in Gary, Indiana, where at the time it was said to be the murder capital of the world. And on top of that, I was coming from a broken home where it was just me and my three little sisters and my mother. So I had to learn how to navigate the, the pressures of life and, and social struggles, struggles and my mother crying day in and day out. She's working two jobs since the day I could remember. This is what I had to go through. No man in the house, so I had to learn how to be a man on my own by, by looking at other men or, or hanging with the guys out in the street. That's how I learned to be a man. I would pick up things that way. See, it's by grace that my mother, when I was 12, she would move us to Indianapolis where her family stayed. And when we moved to Indianapolis, I would actually go to a, a college preparatory school. Now, guys, you, you have to see that I'm this young black guy coming from Gary, Indiana. Now I'm going to a private college prep school where literally only, the only white people I knew were on TV. So, <laughs> I'm stepping into this situation, and I'm one of like five black people in the school. By God's grace, I was able to play football and basketball. I was pretty good at sports, which kept me out of a lot of things. But seeing at this school where I'm coming from nothing, and now I'm here with these kids that some of them drive Mercedes Benzes to school. I'm working since I was able to push a lawnmower, and some of them don't know anything about work. But looking at both sides, here I am with nothing, and here they are still searching and hoping for something else. It was hopelessness on both sides of the coin. So this left me feeling utterly hopeless. If, if they can't get it and I can't get it, then, then what is it? it? It made me start questioning, like, where is God? Why do I suffer? Why do I go to the things I go through? God, why do you have me here? Why is my family going through this? These started to mount up and, until one day I went back to Gary. I was visiting some friends, and I just got my license, and my father wasn't home, so I went and took his car, and we were driving around, and I picked up all my friends, and at the time they were all in gangs. See, one thing about growing up in the hood or, or Gary you don't really have the choice of whether or not you're going to be in a gang. It's just which one are you going to be in. So they're, they're riding around. All of them have guns in their pockets, on their hips. And we go to this festival. And I thank God that nothing happened that night. And after that night, I would, I would sit in the driveway. I remember looking up at the stars. And I said, God, it's got to be more to life than this. I, I went back to Indianapolis. And when I arrived, I found out that my grandmother was sick. Now, guys, my grandmother was like my best friend. She stepped in in those times of need. She was the one that, that provided for my family when we needed things. She would buy me clothes. She bought us groceries, and, and she gave me my first car. She was the one that taught me how to open the door for a lady. Now, guys, you got, this is a funny story because we would go shopping together, and my grandma, this little five-foot-nothing woman, just, but she ruled the world, she would walk up to the door and literally would stop at the door and I'm standing next to her. I have no idea what's going on. She's looking straight at the door. 
about five minutes passed, and I, I opened the door up, and she just moseys on in. <laughs> so when we got inside the door, I opened the other one up. I got it by that time. She just walked in. She never said a word, but that's how I learned to open a door for a woman. <laughs> Praise God for my, my grandmother. <laughs> but sadly, she would pass away, guys, and, and when she passed away, my, my life felt like it literally turned upside down even more, and I was left more hopeless than I'd ever been before. So I, I prayed for really the first time, and I said, God, please give me something stable in my life that will stay. And I said, will you send me a woman? <laughs> About six months later, I, I met my girlfriend at the time, wife who's here with me now, Kaylee. Guys, it was a, in the midst of thousands of people downtown Indianapolis, and I saw her, and it was like a movie. Everything stopped, and her hair was blowing in the wind. God, she was fine. But it literally kind of scared me because I'd never been attracted to anyone like that before in my life. And I had no idea what it was that was causing me to be so attracted. Out of, obviously, she was fine, but it was something else. And I didn't know until I actually got to know her that she was really a believer. She, she knew Jesus, and the way she walked with Jesus, I had never seen before. Through a year of dating her, I, I came to know a man who would actually relate to me in another way, and he would share Christ with me, and I would become a believer and be discipled by him and poured into him. And now you see me standing on this stage, guys. It, it, it's nothing but God's grace that I'm here with you guys. It, it's nothing but God's grace. You talk about a but God moment. I could have been dead or in jail like some of my friends are, but I'm here with you guys. A husband and a father of two, almost three. I take delight in sharing my testimony, guys, but each and every last one of us in here has a testimony. We have something that God has saved us from, or we have a place where we might be right now where, where God has us in the midst of that. I mean, you might be going through it. You might be going through it to where it feels like the bottom has fallen out. And, and this thing, the thing about this time is, is most of the time we feel like these trials and, and tri tribulations are bad things. But I want you guys to know that Parkview, God cares about us. And, and sometimes when we're in those trials and, and we're feeling broken, that's where we need to be. Because it's in that brokenness where God can become all in all. And, and see, that's my testimony I had to get to the point where I was at the end of myself and I can cry out and say, Jesus, I need you. Because that's where God became God in my life. See, sometimes that's where he needs us to get. I love what it says in Psalms 34. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 34, verse 18, he says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And if you flip to the New Testament in Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Not once does it say blessed are those who feel comfortable or blessed are those who figure out everything by themselves. <laughs> See, God's desire for us, guys, is for us to be in that place where we're broken and the only thing we can do is call out and say, God, I need you. Because that's where God can be God in our lives. We need to stay there sometimes. And it's okay. It might not feel good, but God is right there with you. And most of the time, that's where he uses you the most. 
How many guys in here have kids? How many of you all have kids in here? Children. You probably can resonate with this idea. I have two very strong-willed daughters, and I have no idea where they get that from. I think it's their mother or something, but <laughs> I'm not sure. But they're very strong-willed, and my oldest was, was wrestling with this, this toy that was in a plastic package. You know the plastic packages that you can't just rip open? Here she is trying to rip it open. She's trying so hard to rip it open, and I'm just watching her. And then I said, baby, can I help you with that? Can I open that for you? I knew that you needed scissors. She didn't know that. And she says, no, daddy, I got it. No, daddy, I got it. I said, okay. So I watched her do it for about 10 more minutes. (laughs) Then finally she comes to me and says, daddy, can you help me with this? Guys, when's the last time you went to your heavenly father and said, daddy, can you help me with this? This is too hard for me. I'm in this pit of hopelessness, and I have no idea what to do with it. God, can you help me with this? See, God wants to be our place of rest. He wants to be our refuge. He wants to be that place. See, when Jesus came down from heaven, Jesus would come down, and he would wrap on flesh. God in the flesh would come down. He'd be born as a baby, and he'd walk among us, guys. He would go through the same struggles, the same tribulations, the same trials that we went through. He would go through it so he could sympathize with our sufferings. And going through that, he, he, he would find out that we could not measure up to this holy standard that God had set, being without sin and not messing up. So Jesus, knowing that he could do that without sin, he would take our sin to the cross. And he would be stretched wide and put nails in each one of his hands. And he would take on the wrath of God and all of our sin, and he would die there. He would go to the grave, and he would be buried with our sins. But then he would raise from the grave, and he would leave the sin and death there. He would overcome it. And when he rose, it said that he had power in his hands, and that same power he gives to us But if we believe in him. But see, guys, our hope is now in Jesus if we believed in him. So hopelessness truly becomes nothing because we have hope in Jesus, knowing that one day he will come back and resurrect our bodies. He will take us to heaven with him, and we will dwell with him forever and ever. That's where our hope is. But guys, I have to ask you before we leave, is your hopelessness truly nothing? Meaning, have you truly confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you placed your faith in him? It's only truly nothing when we have our hope in Jesus. So guys, as we pray, if that's you, pray silently. Just just call out to Jesus and say, I need you. But if you're like Elijah and you're still in that place of hopelessness and you need him now, do the same thing. Pray along with me. Guys, God is where our hope is, and that's where it's truly nothing. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this time, God. We thank you for being where our hope is. We thank you for being our refuge and our place of rest when we need you, God. We thank you for loving on us when we didn't even love ourselves, Lord. We thank you that there is nothing that is impossible with you. So God, is somebody in here, some people in here that are probably in those hopeless situations, Lord, I just pray that they call out, call out to you and know that you are right by their side and you're the one that can relieve them and be that hope in a time of need. Lord, we love you, we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.